glorious truth. Just trying to find it again. When the age of death is done, we'll see your face bright as the sun. We'll bow before the King of Kings. Oh God, forever we will sing. Anyone else eager for that day? Man, what a broken, weary world. Uh, but that day's coming, church. That day's coming. Praise the Lord. Um, kids, you can make your way back to children's ministry. Um, your beautiful uh, teacher will meet you back there. It's okay. She's my wife. Um, but uh, meet her in the back, and she'll take you downstairs. Uh, while the kids make their way out, let me invite you to open up your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, like I forgot mine, you can grab one out of the back of the pew in front of you there. Um, just encourage you to uh, open God's Word and uh, have that open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home or, or one that you can read easily, um, take this one. It's our gift to you. Um, we want you to have it. We're thrilled for you to have it. Um, but turn with me to James uh, chapter 3. Um, we're back into the book of James. Um, we've been working our way through um, since uh, the start of the year here. Um, start of the year, not, not as in week and a half ago, uh, in, since this, uh, this fall. Um, we're halfway through. Um, if you remember, this, uh, this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus. Um, no pressure. Imagine growing up as the brother of Jesus. Um, you know, why aren't you more like your brother? Um, but he uh, saved um, after the crucifixion, and he was not a disciple through Jesus' uh, time here on earth, um, but Jesus appeared to him uh, after his death, and uh, James became a leader in a prominent church, probably the most prominent church, um, the first mega church, uh, the church in Jerusalem. And, uh, and he's writing this letter, as he says in, in chapter 1, verse 1, um, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's writing to believers, um, but believers who are Jews who have been scattered kind of around the known world, um, probably many of them from his church, his parishioners who have been kind of chased out of Jerusalem by persecution. Um, and uh, if James... This, this letter can be kind of summarized under one heading. It's this idea of authentic faith. What does authentic faith look like? How do we test it? How do we know um, what true, authentic faith looks like? Um, there are many who claim to be followers of Jesus, many who think themselves religious, even sincerely count themselves as Christians, but true, authentic faith has some distinguishing features. You can see it. You can test it. Um, and if you're looking at a, a counterfeit bill or a counterfeit painting, there are certain markings and, and distinguishing marks that, that you can look at to confirm the authenticity of it, and it's the same with faith. And so James has been laying this out over the last uh, two chapters, um, true faith, um, when it's faced with trials and tribulation, um, doesn't abandon the faith, but grows deeper and in sincerity and in purity. True faith fights against temptation and does battle against sin. It trusts the Lord. Um, true faith hears God's word. It doesn't fight back against God. It receives God's word. And not only that, uh, it is a doer of God's word. It, it receives God's word and then it acts on it. It, it moves in obedience. True faith cares for the weak and the lowly. It doesn't judge people based on worldly judgments, showing favoritism to the rich or those who are worldly influential. It sees uh, 
what God sees. It sees faith and humility, values those things. And then summing that all up at the end of chapter 2, James makes this famous declaration, faith without works is dead. Anyone who says that they believe God, absolutely, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ, but, I, but they don't have any works, there's no evidence of that working its way out in their lives, in their day-to-day living, what they call faith is dead faith. It's not true faith, it's counterfeit. A faith that hasn't changed you, hasn't saved you. This week, as we move into chapter 3, um, after saying your, your faith ought to change, you ought to transform the way that you live, um, James then picks up in, in kind of drawing out one of these most obvious and most significant ways um, that our faith ought to change us, and that is the way we use the tongue, the way that we speak. So follow along with me as I read um, James chapter 3. Um, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. James writes, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships, too. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Would you pray with me? Father, help us, God, as we um, engage with your word. Lord, would you humble us before you this morning, that our hearts would be bowed low, um, that we would have the humility to see your truth. God, that we would be hearers of your truth, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry and that we would be doers of your word. God, we confess, as James says, that we all stumble in many ways, and that we all stumble in the way that we use our tongue. So God, would you be at work this morning, um, revealing our sin again to us, and drawing us in humility and repentance, and transforming us for the glory of your great name. Father, I pray for my words this morning. Um, God, that you would guard and guide my tongue, um, that my words would be true um, to your word, Lord, that, um, 
that you would use um, my words um, to stir us all um, to holiness, um, to faith, um, to a life that um, redounds to your glory, Father. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see as we open this passage, um, verses 1 to 5, um, James says, see the power of the tongue. See the power of the tongue. The, the tongue is incredibly influential. James opens this, this sentence um, that, as you might imagine, is somewhat intimidating to preach. Um, I think preachers should just get a pass on this one. Um, how, how do you stand up and say not many should be teachers? Um, it's an awkward place to be. Why would he say this? What's he talking about? Well, to be a teacher, certainly in James's day, both in Jewish culture and Greek culture, and, and in some ways today, um, it was a position of honor, a position of prestige, and, and for them, certainly, um, was often a very lucrative position. And, and so with these traveling teachers going around from church to church and, and people coming up within the church, and, and, and James is saying, hold on. There are many who are seeking after this position for, for personal gain, seeking to become teacher in the church for their own benefit, whether it be for money or self-exaltation, for influence and power. There are many different reasons, um, but also many, I'm sure, who are simply uh, thinking, I could do that. Uh, I'd like to try my hand at that. that. That seems like something I could do. I'd like to do that. And James is simply warning, don't take this lightly. It's not a small thing. Don't take teaching in the church as a, as a casual thing that, that you know, just kind of anyone could do, anyone should do. Um, those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. That's a terrifying thing. There's a greater responsibility. Um, their words will affect the, the spiritual life and health of a congregation if they're in error. They're going to be held accountable for that. They're going to be judged more strictly than, than others. And the Lord's going to hold them responsible for their words. If they're self-seeking, serving uh, their own pride at the expense of the body of Christ, um, God will judge them for that. Again, this is, a, this is a terrifying warning. A preacher ought to step up to the pulpit in fear and trembling having carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully prepared what to say. Um, the pulpit is not a place to take, uh, just kind of cavalierly say whatever comes to mind, to, to rant on your personal opinions, to push your own agendas and hobby horses, and, and certainly not for self-exaltation. You look at Paul, now he defends himself and his preaching in, in uh, the book of Acts to the Ephesian elders, um, he says in, in Acts 20, uh, verse 26, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so Paul sees himself as being on trial. He needs to defend his position, his preaching before them, defending his innocence, testifying to his innocence. And, and he argues that, that because of my right preaching, um, I am innocent of the blood of all. Think of the implications of that. 
if he had been preaching wrongly, if he had been guilty of false teaching or incorrectly teaching or self-promoting preaching, um, he would then not be innocent of the blood of all. He would be guilty of blood. He would be seriously guilty before the Lord. And, And his confidence lies in this fact That his preaching, that he did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's what proper preaching is. Now Paul, as an apostle, is in a unique position. He was in the process of being used by the Holy Spirit to write the counsel of God, to write scripture. But in our day, it's written. It's complete. It's it's here. And so um, that's why we take expositional preaching so seriously. That's why we make such a big deal out of this, preaching through the Bible, uh, verse by verse, carefully expounding what God has said, rather than me coming with my own ideas or my own thought that I can kind of back up with Scripture. Because I'm going to have to give an account for every word that I say, um, and and doubly so for what is said behind the pulpit. And, And my only defense The only thing I have to stand behind in that last day is to say, Lord, I just taught what I saw in your word. I just said what what you had already said. Nothing less, nothing more. That's the goal uh, every Sunday is to be able to say, I just said what God said. And so uh, to be a teacher in the church is is a sacred and and serious trust. And, And some of you will at some point move away from here and often people will email me and say, hey, do you know a good church in this area or that area? And I love answering those questions. I love helping with that for your just FYI. Um, I'm going to look at their doctrinal statement um, and the next thing I'm going to do is, is look through the list of the last months of sermons and see, is it this topic and that topic and that topic or is it James 1, James 2, James 3? Um, what are they preaching? What, what guides the preacher in his preaching? Um, that's going to tell you a whole lot about a church right away. Now, this warning here, not many of you should be preachers, it, it doesn't mean um, that no one should do it. it. This doesn't mean to scare everyone off. Don't, don't ever go there. Um, the, the church needs teachers, and God has gifted some to teach. Young men should be aspiring to that role of elder and teacher in the church, but but rather than those just kind of being jumped on as it so often happens, a young man decides, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to go to Bible school and I'm just going to go after this thing. That should be done with serious consideration, with careful preparation, with the confirmation of the elders that you have a gifting for that, with fear and with trembling. It's a serious thing. It is not to be taken lightly. Now that being said, Looking at James here, he's not actually speaking to teachers here. He's, he's preaching to everybody. He's, he's talking to the whole congregation and saying not many should be teachers. And this is the point um, because teaching is a ministry of words. And we all stumble in what we say. That's why preaching is so dangerous. James, as a teacher, includes himself in this. And in fact, he he goes so far as to say, if anyone does not stumble in his words, he's a perfect man. So that's the the last thing to go, uh, would be stumbling in the words that we say. Um, Our speech is so telling. Our speech uh, goes right down and, and unveils what is in our hearts. 
And because our speech is so powerful, um, he says that, that what we say affects our lives. The tongue, James says, steers your life. Now, I want to be clear here. Um, there's a teaching today um, that says our words are powerful. It says that, but, but, but it means that they, they say that in, in a very kind of spiritual, mystical way. Um, they teach that by, by speaking the right or wrong things, that, that you can kind of influence the universe, as it were, and those good or bad things will come your way because of what you have said. It shows up in a few different places. Um, Joel Osteen is heavily influenced by this. Um, you'll hear him telling people, you need to make these, these positive confessions. I am strong. I am rich. I am successful. And, and the promise is by those confessions, you're kind of drawing those things to yourself. You're bringing them into reality. Um, Joyce Meyer um, is influenced heavily by this as well. Creflo Dollar, uh, Kenneth Copeland are kind of out on the deep end. Um, you need to understand the, the root of this idea and where this comes from um, is that God speaks things into being. He says, let there be light, and there is light. And they would say, we are, in fact, as God's creation, we are little gods, and we have that same ability. And our words have this creative power. When we speak, there's this cosmic creative effect. And so, speaking about how not many should become teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly, there's just no general way to say this. That's heresy. That's wrong. That's not biblical understanding of who we are. Um, that comes out of a new age movement uh, idea, and, and it feels really good. I understand that it's nice to be told that you're a little God and you can speak these things into being, um, but it's not true. God is God. He is creator. We are created. And uh, there, there's a massive gap there. We are created in the image of God, and that's a significant and beautiful thing that we ought to celebrate. But Lamentations 3.37, um, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded? He's sovereign. Romans 4.17 says it's, it's God. It's God alone. That's his domain. It's he who gives life and uh, it's he who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That, that's what God does, not, not us. The teaching of, uh, this teaching is, is not biblical, avoid those teachers. Um, they will lead you astray. That's not what James is saying here. Um, James gives two examples very practically of how the tongue uh, guides life, the power of the tongue and what that looks like. Um, it's like the bit in the mouth of a horse or like the rudder on a ship. Um, both are small like the tongue. Both change the entire course of, of a larger object, the horse or the boat. Um, I don't know how many of you have been um, out to Camp Evergreen and uh, been horse riding with Katharina. Um, I would use myself as an example, but she gave me the most stubborn and obstinate horse in the entire place, and it did nothing that I told it to do. Um, so we'll just throw Pacha under the bus. Um, but Katharina on her horse, um, Katharina does not have the strength to move a horse, to force a horse to go anywhere it doesn't want to go. I, I'm pretty sure she could run at it and throw herself into it, and, and it wouldn't budge. It would shake it off. 
But she puts the bit in its mouth and the reins on it, and, and she just kind of leans this way and off they go and lean that way and it goes that way. It's under perfect control. The ship, even more so. Who, who of us could, could push or move a, a massive ship? Nobody. And yet, with that little rudder at the back, the captain is able to turn the wheel with a finger and this massive ship changes course. James is saying in the same way, the tongue is this small part, this seemingly uh, insignificant part of the body. It boasts of great things. Now, if you're like me, um, I've always kind of read this passage in a kind of a negative uh, undertone. And, and the idea of boasting is typically negative through scripture, but uh, it's a unique word here. It's not the word used for kind of arrogant bragging. Um, this, this passage so far is not really negative. Um, James is simply pointing out generally the tongue has great power to go left or to go right, to go good or to go evil. Um, the tongue guides our lives. How we use our words has a significant impact for good or for bad uh, in the course of our lives. And um, if you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, you're not surprised by that. Um, when I was a kid, um, there was one verse that, that just defined my life, like my life verse as a child um, would have been Proverbs uh, 18.6. Um, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. That, that was me. Um, I, I, had, I had words. At the age of, I think, like six, I was chased home from the park by some older boys that were playing there. And, and they reported to my mom um, that I had called them ketchup breath and told them that their mother was a lawnmower. Um, they were poor children. Uh, I was a gifted young boy. What can I say? Um, I had an older brother who was much tougher than me. And he had older friends who were tougher than me. But my mouth didn't know that. Uh, I would lip them off just the same. And I ended up with bruises and, and uh, getting left out on the front lawn with my legs tucked into my own underwear. Um, it, was a fun, uh, it was a fun path. Um, but that's what my mouth invited but it can also go the other way. Proverbs 10, 11, uh, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Proverbs 15, 1, the, the soft answer turns away wrath, but the harsh word stirs up anger. Um, the way you speak will direct the whole course of your life. People see you differently. People treat you differently. People expect different things from you based on um, the words coming out of your mouth and the way they come out of your mouth. Are you truly honest? Do you follow through on what you say? Do you speak words that are kind and uplifting? And do you speak them in a way that is kind and gentle and building up? Or are we harsh and negative? Are your words filled with grace and gentleness? Or are they sharp and biting? Are your words pure and holy? Or are they mixed with innuendo and that which is improper? The tongue rightly boasts of great power in our lives. Like the rudder on the ship, like a bit in the, in the horse's mouth, um, your little tongue is going to direct the way that your life goes. So do you see the power of the tongue? Just like the, the teacher who is, has this sense of holy fear because he's going to be judged for what he says, um, we all should have this sense of concern, of, of fear of the power of our tongue and our words. 
Then this, the second half of verse 5, um, there's a, a transition right in the middle of the verse there. Um, you know, these, these verses aren't inspired. They're just, those numbers are just kind of thrown in there to help us find things. And, and so that's why you probably have a paragraph break right in the middle of verse 5. There's, a, there's an old legend that the, uh, the verse numbers were added in by a, a monk riding on the back of a donkey um, I don't think it's legit, but it's a good story. Uh, and sometimes you wonder, like, why did you break that verse there? Why is there a chapter break right in the middle of a flow of thought? Um, that's why. Um, and so here, right in the, the middle of verse 5, there's a, there's a shift. There's a, a change. Um, James does turn to a little more negative implications. The first half of verse 5, he says, The, uh, the power of the tongue for, for good and evil. And then... Secondly, from, from verse 5 um, through down to verse 8, um, he talks about the poison of the tongue, that we ought to fear the poison of the tongue. He moves from these neutral examples of the bit, the bit and the rudder, which, which steer the horse or the boat in any direction, to this example of a fire. Picking up in the, the middle of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's terrifying. That's, that's legitimately terrifying. The tongue, your tongue, my tongue, first is incredibly powerful and will direct the entire course of your life. And then he drops this bomb. Oh yeah, and it's like a fire that will burn it all down. It is a restless evil that cannot be controlled. The last few years, we've, we've had some devastating forest fires across our province. Millions of hectares of land uh, destroyed. Um, if you remember back to 2016, I can't believe it was that long ago, the, the fire that made its way into the city of Fort McMurray. Um, that fire alone um, burned almost 600,000 hectares of land. That's one and a half million football fields. It's unbelievable amount of space. The, the estimated cost of the damages of that fire was $9.9 billion. How did it start? You don't even know. It was insignificant. Probably a, a couple of camp, campers who didn't put their fire out all the way or, or possibly someone just flicking a cigarette butt out the window of their car. And, and billions of dollars of damage. It's huge by just a small spark, just a tiny little fire. The tongue is a fire. And, and James explains what he means by that. The tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. It's evil. It is destructive and, and spreading evil. And it's set among the members, among the parts of our body, and it stains the whole body, and it sets the whole course of our life on fire. And it is itself set on fire by hell. We like to think that we can control it. 
We can be careful about what we say. We can kind of keep our tongue in check. I've got this. I've got it under control. It's okay. James says, even though mankind has been able to tame all kinds of different animals, uh, even birds and sea creatures and other things, no human being can tame the tongue. Can't be done. Reminds me of a a video clip that, that... travels around uh, fairly regularly. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's this guy on a talk show, for some reason in a, a karate outfit, and, and he just casually brings this full-size bear with him into the set. Have you seen this? And the bear just kind of awkwardly sits in the chair like a person, um, and, and everything's fine for the first, like, six seconds. And, and for some reason, this bear looks over at the lady beside him and then just begins to maul her. It pulls her out of the chair. Fortunately, the bear was declawed and muzzled and didn't kill her. Um, but it, it attacks her. And, and this trainer is pulling on the chain. And it, eventually, he starts hitting the bear. And he puts this massive bear in a chokehold. And the, 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 the talk show host is there trying to pull this bear off of this lady. It's crazy. It's terrifying. He thought he had everything under control. And that's what happens with something that James says we can tame. I don't know about you, but that's the way I feel some days about my tongue. It was just sitting there nicely beside me. It was doing what I taught it to do and everything was okay. And the next second I glance over and it's destroying the person next to me. What happened? How did we get here? Tongue, what are you doing? You're a restless evil. I can't control you. I try to stop it. I try to wrestle it to the ground, but the damage is done thought I had nicely tamed my tongue. I thought I had it all under control. And no, there it goes again. What is it about the tongue that makes it so dangerous? Why is it this restless evil that can't be tamed, that can't be controlled? Well, as much as I'd like to keep it at kind of that arm's length, right? We'd like to be able to say, well, it's not me. It's just my tongue. That's where the problem lies. It's not my problem. I I try to control him. I do my best, but he's on his own. Um, No. Luke 6.45, Jesus says this, the good person out of the treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The problem's not actually the tongue. To be precise, um, the tongue is just this funny-looking muscle shoved into your face. The problem is what controls the tongue, right? The reason it's impossible to tame the tongue is because, as James seven, or sorry, Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's where our problem lies. You know the old saying, um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? As much as we'd like that to be true, it's not. There's nothing corrupting about power. Power in itself is not something that causes evil. Power is merely an opportunity for the corruption that was already there to show itself. And the greater the opportunity, the greater that corruption moves out. The problem's not power, the problem is the person. And likewise, the tongue is not the source of our sin, 
The tongue is merely the opportunity that our sin has to put itself on display. James shows us that this is what he's thinking down in verse 12. He, he, he makes these examples of the, the fig tree. Can the fig tree bear olives? Can a salt pond bear fresh water? Right? A certain kind of tree produces the fruit that's native to that tree. A, a, a fig tree doesn't produce olives. If it's producing olives, you know it's an olive tree. That's how that works. If you scoop up a jug of water and it's salty, you know that the pond was salty. You don't get fresh water out of a salty pond. It doesn't work that way. That's the biggest concern here. When the tongue speaks, we don't get to say, oh, where did that come from? We don't get to sit back and say, sorry, that's just my tongue. That's the way he acts sometimes. On the contrary, we, we have to sit back and say, oh, oh, much as I have been able to hide it and control it in other ways, that's what's actually in my heart. That's what's actually going on in there. Apparently, I was not aware, but there is a love for self. There's a love for others' approval and attention so deep that I'm willing to gossip, even to slander others so that people will notice me, so that people will like me and see me. Apparently, there's an anger and a maliciousness in me that, that will just lash out to protect myself or a level of comfort in my heart with, with that which is impure and defiled and dishonorable that allows me to use inappropriate language or make coarse jokes around the guys because I want them to respect me or even use when I think no one else is listening. Apparently, I so desperately want to be liked that I will, I, will pull, I will put the truth aside and I'll inflate and exaggerate my stories, even tell outright lies so that people will be impressed by me. Because my admiration of people, my love for others is greater than my love for the truth. Or I have in my heart such a need for power and control, such a need to feel significant that I will use my words maliciously and sarcastically and I will cut others down. I will make them feel small so that I feel big. Or there's a pride in my heart that subtly and genuinely believes that I know better than everyone else, that I'm the one who should be making all of the decisions, and so that shows itself in my grumbling and complaining about others or an insecurity in my heart, so desperately needing to be right that I will argue about the smallest things and I will take it to the mat because I must be right. What leaks out through the tongue is only what is stored up in the heart. And sadly, the sins of the tongue are so often done in a way that is either subtle enough that it goes unnoticed or in a way that is generally and tragically socially acceptable, even within the church. Because we all sin in regards to our tongue, because we all lean toward gossip, grumbling, complaining, it's easy for us to just kind of join in, to let that go. It's easier just to, to let it go, not to, not to lovingly call it out, but just to maybe even join. And these serious sins that unveil a, a terminal cancer rooted in our souls are quietly overlooked and even ignored and brushed aside. 
shouldn't be that way. We should fear the poison of the tongue. We should be so careful and so intentional about our words. We should be watchful. Have you ever noticed um, Romans 3, um, this passage that we so often go to to talk about the, the sinfulness and, and corruption of mankind? Um, it says a lot about the tongue. Romans 3, starting in verse 10, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And then look at where he goes with that. What does that look like? How does it show itself? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's about the tongue. It shows itself in our mouths. Isaiah, when he stood before the glory of the Lord in Isaiah 6 and he's overwhelmed in the awe and majesty of God, cries out, I'm, I'm undone, I'm ruined, literally, I'm, I'm unraveled. Why? What is it that, that drove him to this place of despair, of trembling before God? Isaiah 6, 5, he says, woe is me for I am lost. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do we fear the poison of the tongue that way? Do we tremble before God over the words that we have spoken? Jesus says we will all be held accountable for every word. And notice, I think it's interesting, James's language in verse 8. I think this is helpful. It's actually awkwardly specific and, and more so in the Greek. We just kind of gloss over it in the English um, in, in showing our desperate need. He, he doesn't say the tongue cannot be tamed. He doesn't say the tongue is untamable or no one can tame the tongue. He specifically says, and kind of redundantly, no one, no human can tame the tongue. It's about... No one among humanity is able. Why is he so oddly specific? Well, Augustine made this observation. He does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but that no one of men, so that when it is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, and the grace of God. What we need is, is not to muscle our tongue into submission. What we need is the transforming work of the grace of God in our hearts. We're sinners. Our words put that on display. We are, we're corrupted at our core. We're defiled at the very level of our hearts. And we can't fix it. We can't change it. We need help from outside of ourselves. What we need is Christ. We need his rescue. The one who died that we might be forgiven and washed of the guilt of sin and the one who rose again and who lives in us that we might be freed from the ongoing power of sin. Isaiah, crumbling before the Lord, cries out, I'm, I'm undone, I'm unraveled because of the sin of my lips. And how does the Lord respond? It's a symbol of the saving work of Christ. He takes a coal from the fire and touches it against Isaiah's lips and says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. 
Isaiah sees the poison of his tongue. He's, he's broken before the Lord. He's, he's in repentance and grief over his sin. He admits that he deserves to be destroyed because of it. And the Lord forgives him. And the Lord cleanses him. If you're here today thinking about the, the guilt that is on your mouth and what it says about your heart, feeling the weight of that guilt, the shame before the Lord, we should. That's right. But God offers grace. He offers forgiveness and cleansing to those who, who come to him in repentance. He desires to, he, he longs to cleanse and forgive. He's thrilled to do it. But notice what happens next with Isaiah. The Lord cleanses him of his sin, brings him up off of his knees, and he cleanses his sin, and then the Lord commissions his tongue. The next thing the Lord says is, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? What's he saying? He's saying, who will be my messenger, my prophet, my mouthpiece? Who will speak for me? And Isaiah, with his newly cleansed mouth, says, here am I. Send me. I'll go. And the Lord sends Isaiah, saying, go and, and speak to this people. You who once had unclean lips, now go and speak my word. He cleanses Isaiah's mouth, and then he commissions his mouth. Go. Speak words for my glory. And, and so we ought to first see the power of the tongue and then fear that poison of the tongue and, and, and what that says about our own hearts. But then we ought to pursue the purpose of the tongue. The purpose of the tongue. What's it for? What, what should it be doing? What does it mean for us to use our tongue well? That's where James goes next. Verses 9 to 12. He says this. With it, with the tongue... We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The problem that James kind of narrows in her is this, this idea of duplicity. This, this tongue, um, specifically the tongue of believers, um, worshiping God and cursing mankind who is made in God's image, it's unnatural. It shouldn't be, right? A salt pond doesn't produce fresh water. A, a, a grapevine doesn't produce figs. How is it that your tongue produces both fresh and salt water? It shouldn't be this way. When we speak poorly of others, when we cut others down, when we gossip or slander, when we grumble and complain, when we lie or speak uh, harshly to someone, we're attacking and destroying someone who is created in the image of God. Even if it's not directed at someone specifically, it's an attack against humanity. And the tongue that we use to worship God is now, meant, is now used to tear down what was made for God's glory. So which is it? The purpose of the tongue is to bless and worship and glorify God. 
That's why we were created. That's why we were saved and and pulled out of our sin was to to glorify him. That is the highest, greatest person, uh, greatest purpose of the human. Um, That's the highest, greatest purpose of the tongue. And cursing people, using our tongue in a way that that damages and belittles others through through deception, through gossip, through slander, through meddling, through through sarcasm and harsh joking. Um, All of those things are are an attack against those who are made in God's glory. Who are made to display his glory and so to claim to worship the Lord while continuing to use the tongue to destroy people is to tear down the very thing you claim to be building up. James had already said uh, back in chapter 1 verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. There it is. There's an obvious test of that genuine faith. You say that you're religious, but you continue on with this this unbridled tongue. What you call faith isn't faith. It's not genuine. It hasn't transformed you. It hasn't made any difference. So as those who have been saved from the guilt of sin, who have been washed by the blood of Christ, who have been given this new life in him, um, the way we speak ought to reflect that. Just a few verses on how we ought to speak, what what proper speech ought to look like. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. No corrupting talk. Only what builds people up, not what tears people down. Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness, no foolishness, nor crude joking, which are out of place. They're out of place. They don't fit. They don't match with who we are in Christ. They're out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Colossians 3, verses 8 to 10. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Those things belong to the old life. Those belong to the old sinful me. Put them away. If you're saved and if you've been made new, walk in that. As Josh read earlier in Romans 6, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Walk in this new way. Our words are powerful. And those who have been forgiven and cleansed by Christ, who have put off the old self and put on the new self, ought to be so careful, so meticulously intentional with the words that escape our lips. Are they building others up? Are they true and pure? Are they kind and gentle and loving? Because to speak otherwise is actually to undermine our worship. It's to malign and attack God himself. Again, our highest purpose, the true and glorious purpose of the tongue is the worship of God. That's what we were created for. That's what we were saved for. 1 Peter 2.9 puts it this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, here's the purpose, here's why you were made all those things, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
We were saved for worship. We were cleansed that our tongues might be set free from that which is evil and defiled and worship the Lord our God. That's what we ought to be about. That's what ought to so fill our hearts that it spills out of our mouths. This constant praise and worship and adoration for our great God. Let that transform the way that we speak. I invite the worship team to come. Let me pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know the words of our mouths. God, we, we confess as Isaiah, we are people of unclean lips from among a people of unclean lips. That's who we are. Because our hearts are deceitful and mixed with sin. God, would you help us? Father, would you, um, would you open our eyes to see and love your glory in such a way that it would be um, your glory and your grace that spills out through our mouths? God, that our words might be um, an honor to you. Lord, uh, forgive us, help us. God, we come to you uh, in humility, looking for that transforming work in us by your spirit, through your word. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Um, let's put those tongues to good use. Let us declare um, the glory of our great God together.